0: And thanks for listening.
1: How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture... Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. The technology for self driving vehicles is advancing with amazing speed. With robotic test cars now plying the streets of several U.S. cities, automakers are scrambling to remake themselves as providers of mobility services. Governments are trying to figure out new rules of the road and crosswalks. Advocates of robotic cars say they will usher in an era of convenience and efficiency. Detractors caution against being seduced by techno-lust and warn they could lead to more gridlock and more carbon emissions. With our live audience today, we'll explore the utopian and dystopian visions with experts on personal mobility. This conversation is generously underwritten by the Climate Works Foundation amory lovins is co-founder and chief scientist of the rocky mountain institute one of the country's foremost energy experts he's been advising corporations and countries for decades on the smarter use of power and technology he's the author of 30 books and has won the macarthur genius award and many others i'm going to talk with dr lovins for 20 minutes and then we'll be joined by two other guests Emily Castor is the Director of Transportation Policy at Lyft. And Jerry Tierney is an architect with the firm Perkins & Will. Please welcome Amory Lovins to Climate One. Uh, Dr. Lovins, let's think about Easter. And you have a presentation where you show a couple of photographs of an Easter parade. Uh, I believe it's New York City. One in 1900 and one in 1913. So describe those photos to us and what they mean for how ch- quickly change can happen.
2: The Stanford Innovation Lecturer, Tony Seba found these in the National Archive. Uh, <clears throat> there are two pictures looking down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. In 1900, you have to look really hard to find the first car. In 1913, you have to look even harder to find what might be the last horse and it's not at all clear that there's any horse left in that picture. Thirteen years to go from first car to last horse. And, of course, the horse and buggy people thought they would have decades to adapt. You'd have to put in gas stations and traffic lights and all this infrastructure to replace their stables and such. But Henry Ford simply made the Model T 62% cheaper in 13 years, not quite the same period. Uh, And then it was all over when GM and DuPont invented something called car loans, which were used in three-quarters of the purchases that made uh, U.S. household car ownership go from 8 to 80% in 10 years through 1928. Unbelievable. And what it shows you, of course, is that the the, uh, pace of these transformations is set not by incumbents but by insurgents who don't care in the least about the incumbents' legacy assets and business models and cultures. In fact, it can move even faster than that because capital flees before customers do. The capital markets keenly sniff out disruption, and if they think you're in or headed for the toaster, they don't wait for the toast to get done. They just (laughs) decapitalize you and invest in your successors. That's what's happening now to the oil and electricity industries.
1: And we have a clip we're going to show uh, regarding that Tesla's skyrocketing uh, stock has been making waves in the auto industry, clearly an insurgent. Uh, This recent news led to a spirited discussion about the merits of the company on the Fox Business News Network.
2: Who would have thought that Tesla would come from nowhere and be more valuable than General Motors and the yeah. Ford Motor Company? I mean, company.
1: Ford last month made
2: nine times more cars <laughs> than Tesla. Tesla has more than $2 billion in losses over the last five years. But you know what, Peter, Kernan, put, you put your finger on it. Tesla's not a car company.
3: Okay, they sell cars. Mm. What they really are is a technology it's company. It's a technology company, and look for them to make big steps into energy and battery and other kinds of technology. They're building a huge plant to build batteries for their own car.
1: That's the Fox Business Network uh, talking about uh, Tesla and the disruption it's bringing. Uh, That sounds uh, fascinating, Amory Lovins. But Tesla's still losing lots of money, yet they seem to be talk about this convergence of Silicon Valley and the auto industry.
2: It's funny. My my hope had always been from coming up with the ultralight electric fusion called a hypercar in '91 that Silicon Valley would do it because it, I thought it would take that kind of culture to do it fast enough. So we we did work and do work a lot uh, with the major auto companies, but they were not at that time culturally ready. So after a few years' validation, we actually put all our intellectual property and in that into the public domain so nobody could patent it, got them all fighting over it. Now there's at least seven automakers hot on the trail of 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 the transformation we described, and uh, you know, just the first seven years, it leveraged our three million of of charitably funded uh, R and D investment into over ten billion dollars of industry commitments. So a lot of the acceleration of electrification, hybrid drive, especially in Japan, uh, new materials, ultra lightweight that stuff traces back pretty directly to that sneaky trick we did of treating it like Linux software. Uh, making it free. But is Silicon Valley
1: going to eat Detroit's lunch? Uh,
2: Pretty good chance, yeah. Uh, I think the... And, and in fact, uh, the guy who led a lot of our work is now working for uh, Apple on such issues. Uh, Are they going to make a car? It seems pretty obvious they're going to make something interesting for mobility. And... They, if you if you say working for the Apple car program, they say what car program? Uh, if you just watch where people go, uh, there's obviously very serious efforts at Apple, at Google, Alphabet, um, and uh, all the major auto companies around the world now have centers in Silicon Valley trying to catch some of whatever they, they're spreading, uh, but it... <clears throat> this is this is a mashup of mobility meets information technology, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not just about, for example, autonomous cars. Uh, it's not just about electric cars, but <clears throat> many many elements coming together. And there are ways to, at least four important ways to make electric cars happen a lot faster. Uh, that are not even in the forecast. But the forecasts are stunning. Uh, You know, China in 2016 sold more electric cars than the world sold two years earlier. And China's five-year plan that we helped uh, them with for 2015 to 2020 has a tenfold further increase in electric cars. They have, of course, policies supporting that. So if you buy a fueled car in smoggy Beijing, Uh, you uh, enter a lottery where you have less than a 1% chance of winning, which means you're allowed to buy a registration. If you buy an electric car, they'll register it instantly for free. In Beijing, the license plate for a fueled car costs more than the small car you put it on. (laughs) We don't have policies like that. (laughs) But uh, a lot of countries are are getting them. And in fact, now uh, China and India, Germany, Holland uh, are serious about targeting no more internal combustion cars made from 2030 onwards.
1: California tossed out a governor out of office once over license, uh, raising licensing fees. Uh, that was 13 years ago, 14 years ago. Um, you talk about uh, the industry of Henry Ford and Thomas Edison are converging. What do you mean by that? They used to be camping buddies 100 years ago. There were electric cars then. Fossil fuels dominated for a century. What's happening now?
2: Yeah, my grandmother had one of those electric cars the first one with a crank window, and she got her arms mixed up and cracked herself into a tree. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, electric cars were, for a little while, more numerous than gasoline cars, which then zoomed ahead. And Edison was very clear that that, that was the way forward for propulsion. It took our modern automakers another century and a bit to come around to that view. Uh, Ford... Uh, was a a different kind of industrial genius. They were good friends. And if if those guys on one of their car camping trips together were to wake up and see their industries today, they'd recognize everything except the electronics. But both these industries are undergoing fantastically rapid change and so is the oil industry that made the car industry possible. And basically Ford's and Edison's industry are getting together to eat Rockefeller's industry. (laughs) That they will be the end of the, the oil business along with other things that are happening in heavy vehicles and in industry. So it's a, it's a very exciting time. And I, I, you can kind of imagine uh, Ford whispering to Edison, and I found a picture of him whispering in Edison's ear at the Ford Museum, so I, I put this on as an imaginary uh, bubble. Uh, Gee, I can't wait to see what will happen when our industries merge And that's now what's happening. Because, you know, oil and electricity had nothing to do with each other. Less than 1% connected. Less than 1% of our oil-made electricity. Less than 1% of our electricity was made from oil. But as soon as you take the biggest oil user, autos, and electrify it to displace the gasoline, then a number of important things happen. You make batteries cheap because you make so many of them. Then you have distributed solar all over the place. You also have these giant batteries on wheels plugged into the grid, making it easier for the grid to accept varying solar and wind power. You get the idea. It's one of the major steps in getting off fossil fuel.
1: But is this a happy marriage? Are utilities happy to be married to, oil compa- to, to auto companies? And for a long time, it's been Detroit and Houston had this kind of alliance. One made the, made the, the fuel, uh, one made the cars.
2: But they really didn't like each other.
1: No, that's true. Uh, <laughs> but and they will say, say that now. But how about utilities, electric utilities and cars? They have to put in these plugs
2: everywhere. Are they going to make more money doing it? Well, electric demand in the U.S. has been drifting down for a decade, along with oil demand. Uh, and nice thing about charging electric cars is they can charge smart just when there 's say night wind power in surplus, so they can actually hook up very nicely with uh, renewables to advantage and give the utilities a more even load and make sure that that their renewable power all goes to good use. But so far, a lot of the car companies,
1: the the electric cars they've made have been to satisfy regulators in California. Uh, Some of their their marketing, there's, what, 20-something cars out there with a plug, but there's still a tiny percentage of sales. You think that's going to change?
2: Yeah, it's changing very rapidly, and uh, one indication of why policy matters is that in Norway, a third of the new cars are electric, which is 50 times the U.S. share. Now, one way they do that. The most important is called a a fee bait. When you buy a new car, you pay a fee or get a rebate, which and how big depends on how efficient it is. Well, electric cars are extremely efficient, so basically you avoid very large purchase taxes for electric cars in Norway. Uh, There are other ways to speed up electric cars you can make them two or three times lighter and more slippery, so you need two or three times fewer batteries because they need two or three times less energy to run them for the same range. So that saves a lot of money. And, uh, and you've been talking about that for decades. Are
1: car companies doing it? Are there carbon fiber cars out there today besides yeah, the BMW I <laughs> i8 that costs about a quarter million dollars or something? Can you go buy one?
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a couple on the market. Uh, one limited edition from Volkswagen, 235 miles a gallon for a two-seater. And the one I drive is a BMW i3. I just saw another one out on the street here. Uh, and that's 124 miles a gallon, carbon fiber electric cars. They came out in 2013 and it's the best car I ever had. And in fact, they they, they confirm, as we had claimed since ninety one, that the carbon fiber is paid for by needing fewer batteries. And then, of course, when you have fewer batteries, they, it charges that much faster. You get a whole spiral of nice benefits. Uh, <clears throat> so there are these two technological changes of uh, ultralight and electrification coming together... But then there's also three big changes in business model. And you mentioned one, autonomous cars. That's the furthest off, but there's two that are all over the place right now. One of those is car sharing, everything from get-around to Zipcar. And the other is uh, mobility as a service, like Lyft and Uber. Uh, and uh, now those are starting to come together on your mobile device as... as uh, public and private transport firms open up their code so you can see where all the vehicles are and meld all of the offerings and pick the one you want. Uh, we're doing this actually as pilots in Austin and in Denver, and uh, it's very exciting. It it solves the last mile problem, uh, and it, it's already clear that even the... Uh, the early, the model year 2018 electric cars uh, will be about a thousand bucks a year cheaper to own and operate than a conventional equivalent car.
1: Most people don't
2: consider operating costs;
1: they look at the sticker price, right?
2: Well, no, the, the, but the fuel cost is is many times lower, and if you're in a high asset utilization business model, that is, if the car drives a lot of hours a day. Instead of just one hour a day, uh, that quickly overwhelms any initially higher sticker price. That grows to a four thousand dollar advantage over the next decade or so uh, per year. But we have <laughs> so cheap gas. Pretty... But we have cheap gas now, and
1: Americans are buying bigger cars.
2: Of course, and they're heavily marketed because they're much more profitable.
1: And now Detroit has gone to Washington asking to slow down the increase in the fuel efficiency standards. How much can the new administration change these, uh, this transition that you're talking about by favoring fossil fuels, uh, letting Detroit uh, uh, build more larger cars, which Americans love? We all love them, let's admit
2: it. Oh, I think they could, uh, they could make some policy mistakes. They would be very harmful to the car industry, and that seems to be the way they're headed. Uh, Why harmful to the car industry? Well, I just did a piece in Forbes giving about eight reasons for that. One is that the rest of the world, all the significant markets, have very strict car efficiency standards. Do you really want to make dumb cars for here and smart cars for export? That doesn't sound like a very bright idea if you're a global manufacturer. Uh, You're stomping on your own innovation which means that the talent you're trying to poach from Silicon Valley, they'll have a lot better luck poaching from you. Uh, Just look back at what happened to GM when they stomped on their EV1, which was a terrific vehicle. Uh, But it it contradicted their lobbying position. So they got rid of it and found it much harder to attract the kinds of people they needed. and, of course, this industry plans a very long time ahead. It's enormously complicated to make something with about 14,000 parts working very reliably for about 15 years and sell it for cheaper per pound than a Big Mac, but that's what they do. They're just amazing at what they do. So now you introduce a lot of uncertainty. Gee, are we going to go after the California waiver that lets it and about a dozen other states set stricter standards? Uh, well, that'll be litigated for years. Chances are California will win. Uh, but meanwhile, you don't know what you're going to be making. Uh, and the whole, the whole uh, effort to renege on the previous deal that unified all three regulatory regimes, split it up so they aren't unified anymore, uh, <clears throat> and try to weaken some, uh, that will be litigated. For years. This industry can't afford that kind of uncertainty. So, you know, be careful what you wish for.
1: Yeah, the lawyers often call the shots in the auto, com- auto companies. Um, I want to talk about supply and demand of fossil fuels and renewables. They move in different directions in different ways. So, explain to us how supply and demand work differently for fossil energy and renewable energy.
2: Oh, well, <laughs> uh, fossil fuel, particularly oil prices, have been fluctuating. Uh, since about 1859. They're perfectly random like any commodity. They go up because they went down before. They go down because they went up before. Uh, And if you don't like it, don't buy the stuff. Uh, If you buy renewable energy, that's constant price. For decades, you know exactly what you're getting, so it's much less risky, and risk is cost. Uh, Also... SEBA points out a very basic difference. Your next oil well makes my next oil well more expensive. Your next solar panel makes my next solar panel cheaper because it's not depleting an oil resource, it's building volume in a mass-produced, manufactured product. It's a completely different deal. Technology and geology are not the same thing. Uh, and that's why the cost of solar panels has dropped about 80% in five years and keeps dropping. In fact, it's it's getting so ridiculous in, in the, the rate of change. Some of the cheapest solar power in unsubsidized markets is being bid in Mexico. There was a period of about eight or nine months last year in which the Mexican photovoltaic price fell 37%. And during that that same less than a year the price of European offshore wind power, the next big thing coming in renewables, fell 43%. Whatever forecasts you do about renewable prices are going to be obsolete before the ink is dry. So
1: when we buy more renewable power, the price goes down. When anyone in this audience puts solar on their roof, the price goes down. When we buy more gasoline, the price goes up.
2: Ultimately, yeah. It fluctuates a lot, but, but the general trend is up.
1: If you're just joining us, we're talking with Amy Lovins, co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Institute at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We'll be back after this.
4: And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Advances in automotive technology make it easier than ever to have a fossil-free commute. But what if we didn't need cars at all? Transportation advocate Jeff Hobson says there are plenty of options for getting around town, including bike sharing. But, he adds, It's important to make sure that those
5: options are available to everyone.
3: To me, bike sharing is part of the whole universe of having lots of options. That's what you really need to do to be able to live a full, vibrant life uh, without a car. U.S. cities were mostly built with the assumption that most people would have a car. And we are in the process of reconstructing our cities, rebuilding how we live our lives in ways where we don't have to have a car. And I think it's really important with Bike Share, as well as all of these other sharing kind of apps uh, and services that are coming into existence, we need to make sure they work for everyone. Um, And too often, when these services start they start being pitched at the high end of the income scale and that's something that we need to fix that's something that public policy has a lot to do with whether it's bike share you make sure that you have pods uh, in low-income communities that you make sure that you do outreach not just in starbucks uh, but you do them in uh, the communities uh, where we want to make sure that they get used so that's that's an important part of bike share as well as the other sharing economy
1: Jeff Hobson of the transportation advocacy group Transform joined us in 2015.
4: Now let's join Greg Dalton for the second half of our program on Peak Car
0: Ownership.
1: We're joined now by Emily Castor, Director of Transportation Policy at Lyft. Emily previously worked as a congressional staffer and as a financial advisor to municipal infrastructure projects. should also note that General Motors is an investor in Lyft and a sponsor of the Climate One podcast. Jerry Tierney has been an architect for 30 years and is an associate principal at the firm of Perkins and Will. He has collaborated <coughs> with university researchers studying the disruption of the auto industry given talks at Stanford and elsewhere on cities and autonomous vehicles please welcome them to climate one so Emily Castor, we're talking about a world in American cities with robotic vehicles. Uh, is this going to add to congestion or alleviate congestion in American cities?
0: That seems to be the question that everyone's asking right now. Um, I think you know everyone sees this technology on the horizon, perhaps coming even faster than we all um, would expect. Um, and yet, there's so many questions about the impacts. And I think a, a consensus that started to emerge from a lot of experts um, in academia and the policy sphere in the last eight months or so is that the question of whether these vehicles will create congestion and emissions or whether they will reduce them will, to a large extent, be determined by whether they are personally owned or whether they are shared. And I obviously have uh, an investment, a you know, reason to believe in that viewpoint uh, because I work at Lyft, which is a, a platform for shared transportation. Uh, but it stands to reason that essentially if you take a vehicle that is capable of piloting itself and have it be owned by just one person, that there'll be a lot of other opportunities for sort of <coughs> extraneous mileage and inefficient use of that vehicle if it's solely dedicated to that one person who only needs it a little bit of the time and would be inclined to let it, you know, drive around empty, perhaps, um, circling the block.
2: Or you send it out to Mm -hmm. buy a six-pack.
0: Exactly. Um, (laughs) Exaggerating the current inefficiencies of personal car ownership, if that were the ownership model, um, versus a scenario in which the vehicles instead are being highly optimized by a network, being filled with as many passengers as possible, picking up um, other individuals when one person isn't using them, um, and thereby finding ways to potentially reduce vehicle emissions, um, vehicle miles traveled and therefore congestion. So that, that question of whether or not they're shared or owned may uh, be a fulcrum on which that question rests.
1: So it could go either way. Jerry Tierney, how is this going to affect the cities we live in? The world is urbanizing. More people are living in cities. Are the roads going to be more parking on the
4: street or are the streets going to become parking lots? Well, I think following on from what Emily has just said about the ownership, that's going to be key because I think our future has to be based on a shared electronic electric motor uh, connected vehicle. And if we look at the utilization of current vehicles, from a lot of the people out here in the audience, if you own a car... And you figure out what is your utilization. The average utilization of a vehicle, privately owned vehicle, right now is between 4 and 5%. It means that one of the biggest investments that you own is sitting idle for 95, 96% of the time. And this depreciating does, there. Depreciating <laughs> there as well while we're at it. So the, the notion of having something like an autonomous vehicle being sitting around going out and buying you a six pack or going and getting you a pizza, being like your little personal valet, is quite clearly a very dystopian kind of picture and kind of like conjures up image of anybody remember the Pixar uh, animated movie WALL-E and uh, there they were on their big star liner, the uh, Axiom going around with their Slurpees and like barco loungers. That could be potentially one of the futures. Um, We want to create a vision of like, well, what is the alternative on that? And it based on a shared autonomous vehicle we then invert now the efficiency so that that vehicle has been utilized 95% of the time. It's going in for servicing, battery charging the other 5% of the time. That's great. What else? What are the other advantages, though, that an autonomous vehicle can bring us? Number one, we've gotten rid of parking because you basically turn up at the front door and it drops you off and it goes off and it picks up other passengers and whatever. So you can start thinking of curbside parking becomes a thing of the past. We start looking at parking um, in buildings as being a thing of the past. And before you raise your hand and said, well, how can you have large buildings without parking? The city of San Francisco right now in the downtown district on... Rincon Hill around the Trans Bay where you see the large high-rises going up. They do not require any parking. They have parking maximums, not parking minimums. And they're still building those high-rises. They're selling those high-rises. Now, how can they do that? Another uh, item downtown, there was a billboard up near one of the new high-rises called the Lumina. And it was from Audi. And it was saying, if you moved into the Lumina... They basically gave you a subscription to Audi. And Audi would valet. In other words, they would bring you the vehicle you wanted. So if you wanted to go up to Tahoe, they bring you an SUV. You want to go up the coast and, you know, you've got a hot date or something, they give you a, a sports car. You have to go down and visit the in-laws in Bakersfield or Fresno to give you a four-door sedan. So what's called right-sizing vehicles, because the majority of trips in vehicles are below three miles with a single occupant. But yet we all drive around in a four-door sedan. So now we start right-sizing vehicles. We have them autonomous. Lanes can get narrower. The headway between them, if they're in a platoon formation, means the amount of real estate that these vehicles takes up is shrunk. And right now, we are working on collaborative studies with Arup, an engineering firm you may well be familiar with. And we are currently doing studies where we're showing that we can take urban four-lane streets, four travel lanes, and bring that down to two travel lanes and still maintain the throughput. So when you think of, we've now removed two travel lanes, we've removed the parking lanes along the side, we've freed up that space. So this is an efficiency of the street. If we leave it to the traffic engineer, what he'll say is, great, you've increased the efficiency by 100%. So that means I can double the number of vehicles going down my street. Or we could invert that and say, no, the throughput of the street right now is perfectly fine. We are in the city, after all. We aren't entitled by some constitutional right to drive at 45 miles an hour down a city street. But we start giving that space over to the people. We start giving it to the sidewalks. We start giving it to pedestrians, to cyclists, to people riding scooters, to whatever, to rainwater gardens treating stormwater out in the street. All of those things. But this discussion needs to happen with the general population and not just leave that discussion with the traffic engineers.
1: Amory Lovins, are the car companies going to sell fewer cars in this future? Where they, mm-hmm. right? And are they going to therefore fight it?
2: Well, it depends. If they are ahead of the game, as some of them are in developing mo- mobility services, uh, they like this future of leasing mobility services in which the car is not a source of revenue on which they didn't make much anyway, excuse me, uh, from selling the car. Right. Instead, it's a source of steady leasing revenue, and the cheaper the car is, the less cost they have in the leasing business. Uh, on the other hand, if they're if they're stuck in the old commodity model of just moving the metal, the more cars the better, uh, <clears throat> they will be seriously disappointed because the U.S. is probably going to have peak car ownership, according to a new analysis we just published, uh, about three years from now.
1: What does that mean, peak car ownership, meaning that people not are- You
2: can't count on vehicle sales going up. They're going to start turning over and going down, just like gasoline sales have for the past decade.
0: And part of the reason for that really is through the household economics of what this is going to look like once autonomous vehicles become available on a shared platform basis. Because today, if somebody in a suburb or a city is deciding whether it makes sense for them to own a car or to try to rely on alternative transportation options, they're looking at how much each of those things cost and, and kind of comparing um, the cost profile. And today, especially if you live in a suburb, a place where transit isn't readily available, it's probably cheaper to own a car because you know Lyft has a certain cost that's baked in that's required um, to to compensate the driver. Um, There probably aren't a lot of other transit options that are available in that kind of a suburban environment, and so people choose car ownership. But in the future, when autonomy makes it possible for Lyft to offer um, reliable transportation on demand at a much lower price, that will democratize access to that service and make it suddenly much more financially attractive for the average consumer to make that decision and to be able to count on that transportation being available to them in a way that they've never been able to count on transit um, and really have that be the, the no-brainer choice. So well, we're going to hit a tipping point when that happens.
2: Well, already, if you're living in the city, you can save about ten or $11,000 a year by not owning a car and using the integrated on-your-device public and private transport services, uh, along with biking, walking, get-around And you just put all the pieces together and suddenly it it seems pretty nutty to own a car. And many younger people don't want to own a car anymore.
1: Jerry Turney, is it now a good time to uh, sell the parking garage if I own one?
4: (laughs) 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 Yes. Well, I think we have to start looking at the parking. And we've actually have a couple of clients of ours who own parking garages or are about to Uh, build large parking structures so this is actually a very uh, current topic of ours. Uh, To give you some background, we work on large master plan like projects. We do the master plan along with SOM for Treasure Island for instance. We're working with the San Francisco Giants on Lot A uh, and the development down there. We're looking at other ones around the Bay Area. And so we're looking at projects that would have a build out horizon of around about 25 years. 25 years from now, I mean Designing large parking structures and designing our roads and everything for the current setup of cars is a bit like kind of at the turn of the 20th century, 19th century and the 20th century designing exclusively horse stables for cars. And you can see, you know, a little car going down the street. We know that things are going to transition. So um, parking structures, we're looking at perhaps using them for two things. One, as a strategic way of land banking, because we might be in a situation where we can see that parking garage does not make sense at a certain location. Let's say it's near a railroad station. It does not make sense uh, to build right there, right now, a high-density eight-story, ten-story building. And We're thinking of this, for instance, with high-speed rail in California, where you've got certain cities where the downtowns are being rezoned. It makes sense to put density right by the station. Right now, the market isn't there for density, but there is a market for cars. So we build the parking, the parking structures there, but we build them so that it can be demountable. You can basically kind of downsize them as the market goes away and then recycle these, these parking garages. We're actually looking at doing parking garages in all in wood, in solid lumber or laminated <laughs> lumber, because wood is a very good recyclable material, for instance. So that's one thing that we're looking Lego, at. Lego, maybe?
1: Play down well, lay Lego. No, Well,
4: um. well that is, you think about new
2: urbanist design, uh, kind of thing that that Peter Calthorpe uh, pioneers, uh, you end up with about a third less concrete and two thirds less driving for the same throughput if you design the city around feet, not tires. That is, you you integrate and distribute where people live, work, shop, and play, so they don't need to go very far, nor by car and suddenly instead of uh, vast arterial networks for cars you have a a capillary mesh or web for people Uh, some may be in cars uh, on one way some may be in bus rapid transit Uh, a lot will be on walking or biking but they won't need to go very far to get where they want to be most of the time and they'll end up with a much more vibrant social fabric and commerce, uh, it's a real neighborhood recreated. That's the way cities always grew organically
4: before we let the traffic engineers design them. So, so what we're, in, we're in a stage right now of a transition stage. I mean, right now we can kind of see that we're moving out of one paradigm, which has been governed by the automobile, into a new paradigm paradigm which we don't fully understand, but we know it's going to be considerably different. So how do we manage and, and say future-proof our projects for this new paradigm to arrive? And that's, that's what we're doing in this transition period. And. That will go on until and it's 30 already 30.
0: It's already really starting to happen in the way that um, transportation agencies and planners think about the way they use their curb space. I mean, for the first time, we're starting to see planners coming to us, even property owners, and saying, how can we think differently about how we allocate that space along the curb? Maybe it doesn't make sense for us to have that all chopped up into single-use parking spaces where vehicles are going to sit idle for hours at a time. Instead, maybe we can creatively redesign that to yep. be you know, a pick-up-and-drop-off zone. Cost- Known for yeah. lift vehicles uh, next to um, a bike parking space and a parklet and really craft a much richer variety of human uses of that space that can take advantage of the sort of much higher throughput that comes along with shared transportation when you're not just parking hunks of metal there.
1: If you're just joining us, we're talking about the future of mobility in American cities at Climate One with Emily Castor, Director of Transportation at Lyft, Amy Lovins, energy guru and co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Institute, and Jerry Tierney, an architect with Perkins & Will. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, in New York City, there are 150,000 taxi drivers. One longtime taxi driver talked to us about the rise of robotic cars and how the, the potential to threaten his job and others.
5: My name is Victor Salazar, I have been driving a taxi since 1993. I'm also an organizing committee member of this organization, the Taxi Workers Alliance. The taxi drivers are facing a very tough situation because a driverless car could actually replace us as drivers or force us to be only part-time drivers. We're not against technology, but we're against the use of technology and hopefully will not be used as an instrument of oppression in the future the robots will not do the same job like we will do because when an individual comes to my cab, I talk to them, I make them laugh, I can see that the person may be a little a little sad, I make them a couple of jokes, we talk about politics, we talk about a lot of things we can talk in the cab with the driver. The robots will not be able to do so. Why trying to do this? Just to enrich certain companies and taking away the jobs of individuals, the full-time jobs of taxi drivers are at stake over here. What got into the politicians? What's wrong with people not accepting the reality that we deserve a full-time job? That's the American dream.
1: That's New York taxi driver. uh, Emily Castor, jobs, killing the American dream.
5: (laughs) Bad,
4: bad, 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 bad.
0: So... This is an emotional issue. It's something that this transition of automation coming to our economy, certainly not just in for-hire transportation, not even just in passenger transportation, not even just in the transportation field. Automation is something that is going to ripple across our economy and it's already doing so um, in many, many industries. And we have to take that seriously. Um, from a policy perspective, we need to be investing in the way we prepare people for a 21st century economy. Um, you know, that being said, the for-hire transportation industry industry. Um, taxis, limos, those traditional services, yes, they have been a large part of the transportation ecosystem in a place like New York City. But you look across the rest of the country, and it's actually tiny. Because these types of services in the past, without the benefit of technology, um, without the benefits that automation will bring in terms of making it more affordable for people, have not been able to be incorporated into people's daily commute patterns and actually become a replacement for the private automobile. What we're trying to do is actually something much, much larger to bring on-demand mobility into places where it has never existed. And frankly, the people who are going to benefit the most from that are the people who have been (coughs) underserved by transportation options in the past, who can't afford to live in the center of cities anymore, where now it's become very expensive, and those are the places where transit, a traditional transit can be viable, we need, as an economy, to bring the benefits of affordable technology-based transportation to solve those mobility access challenges that millions of Americans face and actually improve their access <clears throat> to jobs. And I think there's there's a huge uh, potential for economic opportunity there, but it's not going to come without the need for for policies to address the transition in our labor force. You-
1: Jerry Tunney there's another piece of that uh, New York City taxi driver who said a loss of humanity and there's there's a there's a human and social aspect to this but the loss of robots replacing humanity and there's also a sociological aspect to when we cross the street there's a lot of human interaction going on eye contact with drivers how do you make eye contact with a robotic car there's a whole human part of this that's let 's get into that
4: yeah that 's a, a fascinating uh, conversation to have and i 'm certainly not kind of putting down the concerns of the taxi driver, but just going back I, I, I think it 's a false dichotomy to, to have this as a zero sum, that we have an autonomous future, therefore that people 's jobs are threatened. The people's jobs are going to evolve. There's going to be a transition period. I think the taxi drivers are people that's driving these vehicles, your drivers, for instance, and Lyft and Uber. At some point, they transition to something else. So I think we need to start a discussion dealing with the reality of the situation. People are going... The market is going to move towards people wanting to have an autonomous vehicle, a shared environment. That will just arrive... And I think we have to start looking at alternative jobs for the workers that are going to be displaced. Acknowledge that will happen. But you bring up the point of the humanity. Um, For instance, I was uh, coming over here today, and it was a Lyft ride, and um, I had a most fascinating conversation with the driver about... Um, autonomous vehicles, of all things. Why? Because we turned around the corner, and there was one of the Uber, Ford Fusion autonomous vehicles right in front of us. So we had this great conversation. So um, not only do you get a great ride from Lyft, but you have a fascinating 15-minute discussion with the driver. Um, When we move into an autonomous environment and the vehicles interacting with humans, that is something which is probably one of the great kind of like technological barriers that they're confronting right now. Because right now when we come to a four-way stop, there's the body language of the other driver telling us whether whether they want you to move or you go on. Um, And that doesn't happen with an autonomous vehicle. They are very rigid, stick to the rules and kind of almost freeze. So they have not kind of gotten that um, ability for the autonomous vehicle to interact with the humans. Having said that, though, I think they will get a protocol there. How? I have no idea. I'm not a programmer.
0: And from a sociological perspective, um, let's keep in mind that actually I think we can get people to start to have more shared experiences through this. Because today, what most people are doing is sitting alone in a car by themselves driving it. Right? Most people are in this very isolated, (laughs) my car is my castle kind of a commute experience. And what we're doing with Lyft already, even before automation, is actually getting people to carpool. We are, with our Lyft line shared ride option now, over 40% of people in the cities where we offer that choose to share their ride with someone else. Sometimes there are two, three, four people filling up those cars.
4: I was going to say, there's a, I'm not sure if it's an urban myth, uh, Emily, but, you know, the story about, like, with Lyft, People, by and large, always get in the front seat and sit in the passenger seat alongside the driver where if you call an Uber, you always get in the back seat and you treat it like a taxi. So I'm not sure if it appeals to different parts of our brains and our moods and things like that. So I think Lyft is the convivial, the social kind of uh, world and things (laughs) like that. Maybe the taxi drivers are retained as kind of like these entertainment, uh, kind of stand-up comics or sit-down comics in these autonomous vehicles (laughs) to keep us entertained. Well, and there
0: will be individuals (laughs) who will require assistance as we see the elderly, individuals with disabilities, children who require transportation, um, as fewer and fewer people own their own cars, they're going to need to have service-based models for delivering that type of transportation service as well. So um, there will be new categories of jobs in that economy.
2: Emily, I have a dumb question, which comes from Robin Chase. You know, She co-founded uh, Zipcar and is one of the leading thinkers in this area. And she's worried that if we don't along with autonomous vehicles, develop road pricing Then, for example, Amazon would put out mobile warehouses using the free road space to circulate around carrying the 100 most popular items uh, with the promise to deliver it to you two minutes from your order.
0: Yeah, I think the case is clear that we need to apply um, economics to the way that we price the allocation of road space. So um, Lyft as a company already uses dynamic pricing for our own service. And the reason we do that is to make sure that it's always available, right, so that nobody ever gets stranded because even during a peak time, we can make sure a car will be there. But we're not doing the same thing with our roads. It always costs the same, even if you're using it at a peak time when everyone wants to use it, which is why you can end up getting stuck in traffic that's bumper to bumper. So when you look at some of the creative uses of lane pricing, like in L.A. on the 110 freeway or many other places around the country, northern Virginia, they now have hot lanes, these kinds of smart lanes where they apply tolls that change depending on whether it's a peak time or an off-peak time, and encourage people to carpool because you can save money and get a faster travel time that way, and also generate a source of revenue for transportation infrastructure, That clearly seems like the way that we need to go to manage demand, to encourage high occupancy use of cars, and also to provide a replacement for the gas tax.
4: Yeah, I think this is a huge thing about, you know, the notion of vehicles going around kind of strategically waiting to serve you with their whatever it is that Amazon, that we really start to look, and this is an idea that came from Jeff Tomlin at Nelson Nygaard, we need to be having a seat tax, or rather a zero seat tax, that if your autonomous vehicle has nobody in it, it's basically charged at the highest rate, that there is a kind of disincentive <laughs> to have nobody in there, and if there's only one person, it comes down a notch, and basically the more people you put in there, the more your kind of taxes go down, and this comes to a kind of a policy, we're going to have to come to a fork in the road where we disincentivize the single occupant or the zero occupant vehicle if we don't outright forbid it. And I think that is a major toggle between our utopia and our dystopia, because this is going to lead us into a shared autonomous vehicle world or just the Wally world we were describing right. earlier. Well, I mean,
0: I think from a, it's important to understand how businesses optimize the use of assets versus individuals, right? So I think I would actually be a lot more worried about... Uh, private individuals, consumers owning cars, and then not really thinking about how much it costs them to have it be running around with nobody in it when they're not using it, than I would about Amazon or businesses. Because I can say from a Lyft perspective, we're very aware of the cost to us of under-efficiency in the system. We want... Um, any vehicle on our platform to be filled with as many people as possible and to have as little dead time as possible in between each use, um, because any sort of inefficiency comes right out of our pockets. Whereas in- historically, individuals have been much less good at realizing how those costs add up, which is why people don't really realize how, how expensive car ownership is in the first place.
1: We're going to go to our lightning round. We're talking about the uh, future of mobility with Jerry Tierney, uh, an architect, Amory Lovins, the energy uh, a visionary and leader of the Rocky Mountain Institute, co-founder, and Emily Castor from Lyft. I'm Greg Dalton. Okay, this is true or false, starting with Amory Lovins. Flying cars will be commercially available during your lifetime.
2: Uh, Well, I'm about 70. Let's see. Uh, False. And if you love congestion in two dimensions, you'll love it in three dimensions. (laughs) Uh, True or false, Amory Lovins,
1: robots are being tested today that will deliver hot food to the homes of San Francisco residents.
2: Probably true. It is true. It is true.
1: Uh, The robots have a human escort on the street, but that's another story. Um, (laughs) Emily Castor, if the auto industry had listened to Amory Lovins 25 years ago, we would all be driving cooler cars today.
0: True, obviously.
1: Amory Lovins, ride-hailing companies such as Uber and Lyft should share their data with researchers more fully so we can find out if they really increase or reduce traffic congestion.
2: True, but there are a lot of other reasons that that would be beneficial for everybody. Jerry Tierney, uh, true or false, architects can make
1: more money advancing the utopian vision of robotic cars than the dystopian vision. False. Amory Lovins. Oh. Technology consultants can make more money advancing the utopian vision of robotic cars than the dystopian vision.
2: Uh, probably false. Uh, interesting. Last one for Jerry
1: Tierney. True or false? Driverless vehicles will compete with cheap motels because they will be a convenient place to hook up. <laughs> true. Okay, that ends our lightning round. Let's give them a round of thanks. We're talking about the future of mobility at Climate One. Let's go to our audience questions. Thanks for a great discussion. Uh, my question is about mobility for people who have been underserved in the automobile market. You touched on the issue a bit, maybe with regards to elderly or the disabled. Lots of folks that are doing, uh, you know, that are that are older shouldn't be driving, and certainly okay. car sharing seems like a, an opportunity to help. Thank you, Emily Kaster.
0: Uh, Absolutely. This has already started to happen. So um, if you look at the way that older folks get around or individuals with disabilities get around, historically it's, um, f- first of all, been very, very limiting, right? There are a lot of people who are isolated, who don't have access to the mobility that they need, whose family members can't serve them. Um, and and so we're really trying to create something that will help them. And part of the way that we're doing that is partnering with the communities where these individuals live, with senior living communities, also with medical organizations and nonprofits. And we've created ways to allow those organizations to dispatch rides, get those people picked up without the person ever needing to have a smartphone themselves. We've even partnered with the company that makes that special smartphone. I think it's called the Jitterbug for, um, for folks who has really large buttons. And you can press one, it'll call an operator and allow that person to dispatch a lift vehicle to come get you. So there are creative ways the technology is being repurposed for those communities to try to make it more accessible for them. And then um, I think there's also the broader picture of how Lyft can work with public transit in the future and how public transit changes, because public transit serves a vital function in ensuring that mobility is available um, for everyone, and yet they've, they've been very limited in the tools in their tool belt for a long time. Let's go to our next audience question. Hi. Welcome.
3: Hi, Amanda Eakin with the Natural Resources mm-hmm. Defense Council. Um, two quick questions. One, if so much rides, as Emily, as you're saying, on this question of shared versus private ownership, what can cities, states, policymakers do to encourage that shared future as opposed to the vehicle ownership future? Second question, there are a lot of conflicts coming up in cities with the rise of the TNCs. As a transit rider, as a cyclist, we haven't figured out yet where these things should go, how they pick you up, how they drop you off. Buses are often honking at them to get out of the way. Should cities plan for block-by-block accommodation of TNCs now? Or are we in the middle of an evolution So, that it doesn't make sense for them to make infrastructure changes now when we're not anywhere near sort of the end state.
4: Thank you. Um, Jerry Tierney? I'll I'll answer the second question there. it was really a two-part question, and yes, I think that the cities do need to start right now. And in fact, they really, they really are. Um, you know, behind the scenes, we're having these conversations. They understand the whole curb management, the whole notion of curb management, and how we accommodate the lifts and the Ubers dropping off instead of just double parking in front of a row of parked cars. Um, and I think that you're going to see over the next couple of years. A lot of kind of design guidelines coming out. There's uh, NACTO guidelines, um, and hopefully they will be changed to reflect these modifications to the street infrastructure to accommodate a kind of a shared environment that allows bikeways to go through, that allows buses and the bus stops, and then allows curbside pickup and drop-off. What you are going to see is the gradual removal of on-street parking. And I think those... uh, We're at the very baby steps right now, Um, So I think if you kind of come back in a couple of years' time, you'll see more kind of hard guidelines around that topic. Emily Castor.
0: Yeah, and I think those questions are actually very closely linked, because one of the most powerful things that cities can do to help encourage shared transportation is changing the way that they allocate their space. As a city transportation agency, that's really what you have to control, is how do you allocate and and price um, and prioritize the use of your road lanes, the use of your your curb space. And so, you know, it may be expensive to make infrastructure changes, but paint is cheap. Why not experiment to take a kind of prototyping approach um, Um, in the spirit of tactical urbanism, right? these experiments that we've started to see in the last several years of um, painting over places that used to be um, big car intersections and turning them into plazas, we can do that with street parking as well. Paint it over, turn it into creative pickup and drop-off spaces for shared mobility and see how it goes. See if that can actually improve um, the access for pedestrians, for cyclists, and for shared vehicles. And then paint back over it and do it a different way if it doesn't work out. And that, I think, is something that's important to do during these periods of rapid transition to make sure that we can adapt quickly as the technology changes.
1: Lots of exciting changes coming our way. Let's go to our next audience question. Hi, uh, my name is Aaron. I liked
3: a lot of what I heard in terms of bus rapid transit, designing um, city streets for feet and not tires, but it seems to be um, based on the assumption that we need to switch to ride sharing or wait for technology. What are some of the barriers and solutions for U.S. cities to get us doing things like Copenhagen and Amsterdam and Münster are doing in terms of getting people on the street, biking, walking, active transit?
1: Jerry Tierney, how to get American cities more like you know, people on bikes today rather than having these long term changing the concrete in our cities, yeah. which we know takes a long time yeah. and is expensive.
4: Yeah, And this is a, this is a really good question. And, and in San Francisco, we're starting to see that with the better market street program which is in the process of being implemented. But that would be a hard infrastructure improvement. I think Emily touched upon it earlier when she said using the bucket of paint. And this is the example of, if people are familiar with Times Square, Herald Square in New York, where the first prototyping of that was consisting of taking paint and lawn furniture and whatever they could find at the Department of uh, Roads and Transportation in New York, and simply started painting out Times Square and reconfiguring that and looking at how successful it was, and then taking that model down to Harold Square, and again, that was successful, and then spreading throughout all of the boroughs in New York. And I think what we, we need to do, and Emily touched upon this, is we need to start just taking this out and trying things out. And I think that cities need to start doing that right now. Some cities are doing it, some are not. Um, how we get to the places like Copenhagen and Amsterdam in terms of bike ridership and things like that, that's almost a cultural thing. But again, I think we're, we're getting there slowly in baby steps. Emily
1: Claster, last word.
0: I think you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about that I um, consider the most interesting is the way that these all converge, right? So... How can we actually catalyze this shift toward shared transportation and maybe get to some of those more ambitious kinds of policies? I mean, part of the way that, and, you know, and how can we make sure that those vehicles are all electrified? It's because when these technologies come together, each of them make the others work better. Um, you know, we didn't spend as much time in this conversation on electric vehicles as you might have thought, um, but we talked, you know, early, early on today about how hard it's been to get people to buy electric cars and how, you know, the models that have been put out there in the past, you know, whether you could argue whether they have been marketed heavily enough, um, but Americans have only bought them you know, a, a couple percent of, their, of the total mm-hmm. consumption in the country. Well, what's going to massively change is that as people shift away from owning them toward accessing them on a shared fleet, all of a sudden the economies of scale of operating electric cars are going to be unlocked um, by um, companies that are operating these autonomous vehicles. They are going to be able to capture the fact that it's so much cheaper when you're doing you know, many thousands of miles uh, per month to be able to operate an electric car instead of a fuel car, and that is going to catalyze a shift um, that will reduce emissions for each mile that are driven on these platforms, that will put more people in those vehicles, and to wean them off of that model of personal car ownership that has resulted in this particular set of design characteristics in American cities. And once people fundamentally change that behavior, you will see an openness, I think, toward different types of street designs that people haven't been open to in the past when they they felt like they had no options other than owning and driving a car.
1: And one other person might say that we've been talking about it's still a very car-centric future. There's another school of thought out there that cities ought to get away from cars altogether, more on bikes, and this is just replacing one car-centric city with another car-centric city. We've been discussing the future of American cities in the era of robotic cars. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests on the show today were Amory Lovins, an energy leader and co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Institute, Emily Castor, Director of Transportation Policy with ride-hailing company Lyft, and Jerry Tierney, an architect working on the impact of robotic cars on cities. You can hear a podcast of this and other Climate One programs by going to our website or wherever you podcast. If you do, please rate the podcast and leave a comment. To our audience in the room and online and on radio, thanks for joining us as we change the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Thanks you all for coming. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.